0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky-Wilson.
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicky.
0: Today on the show, we are going to walk you through Dietrich Bonhoeffer's wonderful little book *Life Together*, written as after in the aftermath of his two-year experiments with a secret seminary at Finkenwalde, under the auspices of the Confessing Church in the late 1930s, as things were really heating up in his German homelands. and um, you know. People always love stuff that comes from the Nazi era, uh, especially stuff that resists the Nazis during the Nazi era. But um, we love Bonhoeffer's book not only because of the zone we get from resisting Nazis, but also because it is simply a uh, fantastic and insightful and beautiful book about what it means to be a Christian. And it is, in that sense, evergreen and always timely. Dad, what in particular, though, made you want to pick up this book now? We've certainly talked about Bonhoeffer uh, over the past uh, three-plus years years of our podcasting, but we've never done an episode just on him or on a book of his before. So why this? Why now?
1: Yeah, great, uh, Sarah, because I've been really focused in my discussions with my local circle of clergy friends about the uh, challenges after two years of COVID uh, uh, to congregational life, to the life of Christianity as community. And uh, I think the pandemic has uh, exposed all sorts of pre-existing fault lines, and uh, pastors are feeling uh, deeply challenged by these circumstances, discouraged. In the mainline Protestant denominations, the dropout rate among clergy is skyrocketing, um, and the communities themselves are discouraged and demoralized. Uh, it's the context of con- congregational life today that inspired me to ask you let's let's do a podcast on this because as in Bonheffer's time indifference if not hostility to the church of christ prevails indifference because it seems that the church makes no difference or hostility to the extent that the church does make a difference.
0: (laughs) Just can't win.
1: Can't win. And that's how a lot of folks feel right now. The church is, um, you know, for in my theology, and I think yours too, Christianity is congregational life. Christianity is the community's life together. And now we're caught on the horns of a dilemma. With equal and opposite reactions to the community of the faithful. Affirming that the, chur- the church makes no difference because, as you quoted, uh, as I've quoted you from your experience of listening to mainline sermons in a certain uh, affluent community, the message is God is not a problem. Don't sweat it, don't worry it about God, right? So, God makes no difference, really, to your affluent middle-class lives. Or assimilation into our culture, that is, so this is assimilation into our culture or subculture so that we don't attract any um, unfavorable uh, opinion. Or the opposite, the reaction against this is making God into a problem for others, but not for us, in the in in the in, in the church, and this is toxic Christianity.
0: Oh, it just made me think of uh Jesus' accusation against the Pharisees who who hang a heavy yoke on other people but don't lift a finger to help them carry it. Or maybe it's the lawyers. I think it's the lawyers he accuses of that. Right. So mm-hmm. uh yeah, you know, I I've just been listening to some um commentary among I'd say the kind of of uh American evangelicals that we would be friendly and sympathetic with who are are reckoning with their own um, internal destruction in their communities. Um, more often it seems from the the church growth model finally just completely futzing out <laughs> and um, a lot of really dangerous leaders who got too much power and did a lot of damage and just a lot of spiritual, sexual, emotional carnage along the way. and um, But one of the really surprising facts that came out of that is that there has been an increase in the number of Americans who identify as evangelical, but who go to church once a year or less. And what came out of that is that evangelical has really become politicized as a self-identification. But a lot of people who identify themselves that way are not actually a living part of a living Christian community, do not know scripture, do not know worship, do not pray. And and therefore, (laughs) there's this huge gap between... the perception on the outside of so many people who appear to be religious, but in fact aren't at all. And yet those people claim a religious identity and a political posture. Now, that doesn't solve by any means all the problems churches are facing. But it it struck me precisely in the because uh, I heard this while I was reading Bonhoeffer and thinking, wow, this is how dangerous Christianity gets when um, the 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 claim for it is not matched by these disciplines and commitments of community life that Bonhoeffer so elegantly lays out in this book.
1: Well, Sarah, you know, not to become uh, overtly uh, partisan or polemical here, but let me just confirm what you just said with the uh, recollecting the notorious incident at Liberty University in 2016 when Donald Trump held up a Bible and pointed to a passage in 2 Corinthians and said look it's right here in 2 Corinthians where the spirit of the lord is there is liberty he quoted at least he could read <laughs> read what he quoted out of 2 Corinthians so that's how familiar the donald was with the scriptures and uh, and that's i i worry that that's how familiar with the scriptures those are whose political identification has become their religion. Uh, so anyway, let's uh, let's not dwell on that uh, figure any longer than we have to.
0: Yeah. Well, I think the point is that um, it's one thing to claim a label or a, and an identity or an affiliation, and it's another thing to um, color that in fully in, in bright glowing colors <laughs> that are drawn by the, the hand of God and not by our own delusional fantasies. And, um, you know, and I, I, I think it's fair to say this is a problem that afflicts all churches everywhere. It's not just, That's right. um, not just American evangelicals specifically. And and like you said, my experience of uh, affluent mainline Protestantism is, is, it's like, it's all very light gray shading. <laughs> That's exactly. about all they got.
1: Right. You know, you're right. The, the, the habit is that the church looks to have a patron, a secular patron. It can be left-wing, right-wing, or uh, milquetoast centrism, but the church looks to have a patron. And one of the great challenges uh, and gifts of Dietrich Bonhoeffer for us is that the body of Christ need, lear, needs to learn to stand on its own two feet, which is the gospel and the scriptures. And so that's what this little book is about. Why don't you tell us more about the circumstances of it?
0: Um, okay, so, you know, Bonhoeffer had been part of the Confessing Church, and um, which was in, in many ways admirable, though not only admirable. Uh, one of the the kind of internal quarrels of the confessing church is that they wanted not to be, you know, dictated by what the Nazis said, but they weren't necessarily standing up always as strongly as they ought to have, especially for the Jews. Early on, it seemed like it started out more of church independence rather than, um, you know defying the the Jewish dictates of the Nazi regime anyway but Bonhoeffer stuck it out with them in a a costly discipleship um and what basically happened is once the Nazis fully got control of all of the seminaries and theological education the confessing church sponsored some uh, quiet private secret communities to train pastors who would continue on in the confessing church and resist the Nazi regime and so Bonhoeffer, I think he'd just come back from England at this point um was assigned to lead one of those um, in the countryside in this uh, area of Finkenwalde and so he he basically had um uh, you know, the run of the place. Um, if it had been any less admirable a person than Bonhoeffer, you can see all sorts of ways that would have gone real wrong. Um, but but he uh, was, I think fairly to be called a saint. And he set out a, a real program of life for the seminarians, including their, we'll get into this, into their their prayers, their studies, their work, their play, their time together, their time alone. And it definitely caused a kerfuffle, both among the, the students and then later when the book came out, that it seemed too monastic, too Catholic, <laughs> even though it was all young men living alone, um, preparing themselves for spiritual work. Um, it seems almost inevitable. It's going to take on... A monastic quality. Anyway, so this went for about two years. His good friend Eberhard Betko was there and, you know, able to also document that. And then, but they were discovered, they were shut down, everybody had to disperse. And, um right after it ended, Bonhoeffer wrote out this book based on the experience and um, did not intend it as a as a mandatory template for everyone else, but as a look at this specific experiment and then take what you can from it for your own community. And I had not um, remembered this in my previous readings, but he even says, like, this could be, you know, um, transmuted to serve the just an ordinary congregational life, but also Christian family life. You know, he has a, a quite a broad number of places where any, any, I guess, anytime Christians are deliberately convening together, whether it's because they happen to all live in the same house, because they're related to each other or in any other fashion, they can take something from what he learned in his Finkenwalde experiment.
1: Yeah, that's right. And uh, you're absolutely right about that point. He, he warns readers not to take it as a blueprint, It's supposed to be an inspiration for them to think locally about intentional Christian community. And it's kind of in the background of um, Lutheran orthodoxy going back several centuries, there was a view that the Christian family is a form of the church. It's a a form of the church. It's an extension of the church. And I'll talk about that a little later when we get to the practices of Confession and Communion in the book. I just want to mention that before the censors uh, 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 shut down the book, it had sold 80,000 copies in Germany. Isn't that astonishing? 80,000 <laughs> cop- copies in 1938 in Germany. Amazing. Well, uh, Bonheffer's answer to the problems of the cultural indifference, if not hostility, Um, and his remedy to forms of toxic Christianity, which were all around him in the German Christian movement, was to reconceive the church community. Now, listen, this is, I want to be very precise here. The church community as the present form of God's self-revelation in his famous expression from an earlier work, Christ Existing as Community. So it's a Christological claim. Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and really present through word and sacrament exists as the community gathered around his living word and sacraments. And I think that's, you know, the fundamental claim that is being made here. Do you ask where God's self-revelation is? Don't answer once upon a time in the distant past, here or there or the other thing, as we'll see later on when we look at how Bonhoeffer encourages us to use the Bible. No, look right here and right now in the community where the living Lord Jesus Christ speaks to his gathered people today through word and sacrament. If you take that seriously, Sarah, that is, Bonheffer thinks, the present form of God's self-revelation.
0: Okay, so I'm going to ask first the easy dogmatic question and then the impossible ecclesiological question. So the easy dogmatic question is, how does Bonhoeffer relate this Christ- Truly present existing in the community to the both to the ascended Lord who lives and reigns at the right hand of the Father and to the Holy Spirit is there a so you know for first what what is the relationship of, of the Christ up there and the Christ down here and then where does the Holy Spirit if at all feature in this depiction? right
1: exactly the Christ, ascended Christ is not imprisoned by his ascension, to dwell up above in heaven as if locked in a prison. Rather, the ascended Christ, following Luther, is seated at the right hand of God's power, which means that he is invested with divine omnipotence and omnipresence so that he can be present where and when he wills. We know where and when he wills according to his word of promise. This is my body given for you. He who hears you, hears me, etc., etc. These such passages in the New Testament. And for this really present Christ to be received, heard, trusted, obeyed, loved, uh, uh, there needs to be the divine activity of the Spirit providing the gathering and the attentiveness and the reception of what is offered in the word and sacraments of Christ. So there's a kind of objective pole, the self-presenting Christ, and a kind of subjective pole, the Holy Spirit who opens heart and mind to receive uh, in living faith what is offered.
0: That's very nice. Um, and, and that makes a, a lot of sense Um uh, very much of um, Bonhoeffer standing in a, a long line of um, Luther interpretation as well. That ubi voli querens is that what presence? I, lo- I always love that word.
1: <laughs> ubi voli Ubivoli
0: Ubi voli prizens, right? Not querens. <laughs> not looking wherever he may be. <laughs> he
1: can be present wherever he wants. Yeah.
0: Right, right. So then, then just a quick follow-up then. For Bonhoeffer then, does that mean the nature of the Lord Christ's presence in the supper is um, one distinctive and unique mode of presence, but not the only one, to the exclusion of the other ways in which he talks about Christ's present to the community?
1: Oh, no. You know, it, it, it is the Lord's presence in the Lord's Supper is a specific presen- a presence for a specific kind of purpose, which we'll get into shortly. But more broadly, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I mean, that Bonheffer does not limit the real presence of Christ uh, to the Lord's Supper and our communal eating and drinking thereof, uh, though he certainly thinks that the Lord's Supper And the communal eating and drinking is the center around which the other forms of the presence of Christ in the community um, 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 rotate, as it were, or from out of which they radiate, maybe.
0: So is the the challenging edge then and what Bonhoeffer is saying is that for whatever all the you know the good Lutherans had learned from their dogmatics there was basically a functional absence of Christ from community or Christ's presence in community was so carefully monitored like it's in the biblical text and it's in the Lord's Supper but it isn't actually in the the lived life of the community of this specific congregation of individual people in this particular time and place where Christ Christ Himself really makes Himself known. That must be the the really challenging aspect of what He's saying, right?
1: Yes, it is, and it it there was an allergy to it developed in Lutheran orthodoxy because of the kind of sectarian form it took in Pietism, uh, and the and the eclipse of the Holy Spirit by the objectivity of the word emphasized so strongly in Lutheran Orthodoxy. Uh, so these allergies developed uh, in historical Lutheranism much after the time of Luther, I would say. And for Bonheffer biographically, it was his sojourns in New York City, particularly 1933, uh, I think it was, uh, 31 or 33, when, when he stayed in, at Union Seminary and began to attend the Black Baptist Church of Adam Clayton Powell, Sr. And there he experienced the, the, the living response of the community uh, to the proclamation of the word. And that uh, I think many biographers have pointed out that uh, he said, this is what the church is supposed to be.
0: Right. Yeah. I I was delighted that he uh, he brought back a whole bunch of uh, vinyl records of um, Negro spirituals, as they used to call them in the hymnal, um, in order to play for his seminarians. So they weren't just getting Bach cantatas, even though those are also very excellent. But he wanted them to actually hear the the texture and feeling and passion of that um, that wonderful church experience he had in New York. Yeah. Okay, so then let's use this to talk about the impossible ecclesiological question, which is the whole reason, Dad, you wanted to talk about this is failing congregations and peeling out pastors and just the heartache, at best, if not the outright uh, spiritual abuse, um, among many other kinds of abuse that happen in actual lived congregations. So So uh, let me say this when uh, one of the big points that Bonhoeffer makes in this book, uh, I think a pretty famous one is it's a real polemic against idealism and coming to a congregation expecting an idealized community of, of perfectly sanctified people and, you know, Great, good job, Bonhoeffer. But I realize that um, I can tell from my the hardcover edition of of this book from um, the Fortress translation of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's works. So I can see from my markings that I read it at least twice before, and um, that that's also kind of comical. What uh, stuck out at at the previous readings, but what I got this time reading out of it is um, the realization that despite it's an explicitly anti-idealistic interpretation of congregational life, I had always come away from the book feeling it was an impossible standard of what an idealized <laughs> Christian community would look like. And I, I remember the last two times reading it feeling really defeated by it and thinking, you know, like, I shouldn't be, but I just was. Um, I have a much more positive reading this time, and we'll I'll get into that later. But I think it's really important to... To lead into this hard ecclesiological problem, which is that if most people right now are experiencing some kind of devastation in their ministry or in their congregational life, you know, even if much of it has been imposed from the outside, like you said, the the restrictions and lockdowns have exposed fault lines that could, you know, for only so long be papered over and now they can't. And so just Dad, there's so much going wrong. So how do we even like, how can anyone read this book and not just feel depressed? Like, well, you know, we're nothing like a Fink and and we never will be. And I'm not sure I'm ever going to go to church again.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, I think this topic, this issue that you're bringing up will come up several more times in our discussion today about this. But let me just clarify a little bit more about anti-idealism. Because I think Bonhoeffer is still frequently misunderstood as some kind of utopian idealistic thinker when a- any serious deep reading of Bonheffer has to grasp that his entire project is theological realism. Uh, it's deliberately, intentionally, polemically anti-idealist. And that's even the famous uh, passage from The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, criticizing creep uh, cheap grace uh, as the ideal uh, 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 the ideal uh, doctrine of Christianity that God is forgiving love. And Bonifer's entire polemic is, you, this is nothing but an idea. It is not the real presence of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, received in faith by the Holy Spirit. That's the real thing. That's the theologically realistic thing. Grace is is turned into an idea and an abstraction and then lifted up as a general principle so that if you hold to the general principle of the gracious forgivingness of God, then you have the forgiveness of sins without genuine repentance. And Bonheffer says turning grace into an ideal is a cheapening of the real grace of the crucified and risen Christ, who nevertheless comes all to his still struggling and sinning people, uh, constantly to uh, embrace and renew them uh, and to uh, uh, transform their real lives here on the earth. Um, that's costly grace, the grace that cost Christ the cross in order to come to us so that we could really be changed and not simply think that we're changed.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I think a lot of what we're seeing is the, the legalism, uh, let's say the glossy legalism of a success oriented Christianity is, you know, I think all Lutherans would have predicted that would be an obvious failure. But I think what we see again and again, no matter how many times we hear a quote Bonhoeffer is that cheap grace really doesn't work. It is nowhere near strong enough medicine for the level of sickness that we have.
1: Right. And, um, Bonhoeffer was attacked by the fence sitters in the church struggle for the, this very reason that, uh, that his, he was being impossibly demanding. And uh, what pastors could actually live with their congregations if they held up Bonhoeffer's costly grace? And Bonheffer said, in fact, your cheap grace is the ruin of the church and it's going to be the death of the church. And that's exactly what has happened.
0: Yeah, why was he ever right about that? But, you know, I I think that really, that gets to the heart of the problem with a, a church culture that is... So, com- uh, I don't even want to say comfortable. Just so part of the fabric of ordinary civilizational life. And I, I just want to say, in defense, like, what else could the church have done from the beginning? Like, you don't get persecuted by the Roman Empire for four hundred years, and then suddenly the Roman Empire decides it wants to be Christian too, and then say, no thanks, please go on persecuting us so we remain pure. No, you say, great, now we have a chance actually to bring Christian mercy and wisdom to bear on the inevitable structures of, you know, state and power and economy and try to make them better. Like, it it was a... It was a gamble that absolutely had to be made, and I'm I'm always kind of irritated at people who so easily dismiss Constantine or or uh, you know even Charlemagne or all the the kingdom building that went on. Like, what else were they going to do? Were they going to really let brutal paganism continue to rule society and and artificially remain persecuted? But we're here at the far end of this, <laughs> and I think what we see again and again is just how how I guess what I've seen in my even in, in my own earlier ministry is like even figuring out how to make Christ the center of what you do again when so many other things occupy the center it does feel like all you're doing is just you're going to be in a constant state of fight how, how are you going to win people's trust how are you going to change their hearts you know your your first mission field actually is the congregation and you're not usually told that when you are you sign up for the ministry <laughs> you know you, they don't they don't warn you sufficiently of, of how that's going to play out.
1: Well, I think, you know, there's been some uh, real interest in Bonhoeffer's youth ministry in Berlin, and there's been several books published on it recently. And I think there you see an approach to ministry. I don't want to get off topic of life together, but I, th- I think there you see an approach to ministry, how you can actually uh, minister the costly grace of Christ uh, into the world in a renewed evangelism, of course, for Bonhoeffer that was the ministry of catechizing street urchins, urchins in a, in an industrial neighborhood in Berlin or something like that. Uh, so I do think there are answers to that question, but I would like to, Sarah for us to stay focused on uh, the theological realism that Bonhoeffer is advocating in this little book. It's a, it's, a, it's a model that comes from the Gospel of John. And uh, the Gospel of John, of course, is often thought of as kind of a, 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 the, the product of a community that is experiencing the d- darkness and hostility of the surrounding world. Uh, but nevertheless, this is the same gospel that affirms that God so loved this dark and hostile world that he gave his only son. And in the midst of this hostile world, there emerges a real Christian community, uh, which will learn, which will teach the surrounding world its own sinful lovelessness, just by the demonstration of the love the Beloved in Christ show for one another. And through one another, to that very indifferent or hostile world, so I think that I think that Bonhoeffer's model here is Johannine. I think his ecclesiology is Johannine, and that's what what's really hard to stomach about that, for conservatives and liberals today, is that they still want the culture to be the patron of the church, and that's why they adopt opposing politics, of accommodation. Um, or of uh, of toxic uh, masculinity or something like that on the other side.
0: You know, I often think about how people often like to say, our, ch- our congregation is just like a big family. And I always think that is absolutely wrong, because you can't just walk into another family and join it. <laughs> By definition, you cannot do that. And also, families need to have a certain kind of alignment with one another. You you take very keenly whether the people in your family, you know, agree with you, shame you, make you look good, make you look bad, whatever. And I think what is so extraordinary about the experiments of church, and I, I've gotten a lot more appreciation for this in my time in Tokyo, is that what church does is because, as Bonhoeffer says, the only common factor you have is Christ. That's it then what has to happen is that you have to really let the other person be another person and that you cannot let your own ego, your libido dominandi, your need to look a certain way to the patron of the culture um, dictate the nature of your relationship with that person. You just have to take whoever comes because Christ has called them to be in that place. And I... But I think the problem is that a lot of that is is advocated in a kind of vacuous pro diversity kind of way, like you know it, it's it in the obvious sense of um, visual diversity of what people look like and where they're from historically. But like even even if you are are really into like viewpoint diversity or whatever, if it's just that without Christ as the center, but more specifically, I think what Bonhoeffer lays out is the Christian practices that literally make it possible for you to remain in fellowship with one another and not not blow apart at the seams. I think that's the 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 real the profound challenge to all the other ways of construing community that you you laid out there so nicely.
1: You know, that's that's just the basic relationship of agape and eros, I think that you're describing here, Sarah, because all um natural uh, forms of community are based on erotic love. I find something attractive, beautiful, desirable uh, in the other. And so my love for the other is an extension of my self-love or my self-affirmation. And within limits, that kind of erotic love is is fine. But it is never limited. It is insatiable. Its desire is never satisfied with what is given to it. And that's where erotic love always becomes destructive, when it overreaches and tries to accomplish more than it can. So family life can become a curved into itself and a a kind of a collective egotism. And so what you're talking about is Christ being the bond that connects us in the family of the church or the uh, adopted family of the church has a sanctifying, a correcting and sanctifying effect so that even healthy family life depends on this agape correction of the natural greediness of our erotic love. How does that sound?
0: Yeah, you know, actually, it really, I think, connects strongly to Bonhoeffer and ethics when he talks about the church's commitment to taking care of also penultimate things, not only ultimate things. And I think the reason why is because people still have their erotic needs broadly construed as to be with people who they enjoy doing stuff together with, to be with the family that is given to them, to, you know, have a lover, spouse, right, you know, who, who you do have that unique kind of passion for. Those things are hugely important to human experience, and they are part of the created good. And so the problem is that I think one of one of the congregational problems now, is all those things have been so destroyed for people, family life, friendship life, civic life, that even when people do come to church now as like a last resort, they need the church to fulfill all those other needs, the penultimate or erotic needs too, which which I think the church rightly perceives that people need, but the church should not be primarily in the business of providing. It should be equipping people to help take care of those things. And I think that's another way in which it's so exhausting for churches right now is their somehow look to to provide absolutely every need, but then to provide it in ways that are specific to people's own predilections. And then people get angry that the penultimate commitment of the church is not where it should be. And the church sees such a crisis, it can barely keep up with its ultimate concern, which is the centered life on on Christ.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay, good. I think we've kind of laid out the the problems that Bonhoeffer is dealing with here. I just want to make one more comment. Uh, he ref- he he was reflecting in this book on the fact that even the great Reformation preaching of the justification of the ungodly by faith alone sounds like so much empty abstraction, so much religious verbiage. Bonheffer noticed that even the pure preaching of the word alone falls on deaf ears unless and until that justifying faith and that really present Christ is incarnate in intentional Christian community. You know, Sarah, when I was a pastor years ago, um, um uh, I learned very quickly. I was, I had a struggling congregation when I arrived and I knew the congregation needed to be rebuilt. And so I taught myself to be an evangelist, Um, who went out to seek and and find the lost sheep and bring them into the fold, Um, something seminary had not prepared me for. Uh,
0: (laughs) You must be a Lutheran.
1: Yes. I quickly learned, however, that I I can bring people to the church, but I can't keep people in the church or make disciples out of them unless there is an intentional Christian community to welcome them, embrace them, and include them. And that's when I had to backpedal a little bit and start preaching and teaching the congregation uh, about their duty to be hospitable uh, to the newcomer. And then we were able to actually to make some progress.
0: Oh, that is so interesting. You know, that's exactly why I stopped inviting people to my first call a dozen years ago, because they were not going to find that in my congregation. And I didn't want, you know, people who had such a tenuous relationship with God to be further damaged by their first reconnection with the church in, in decades. Um, much more positively, now I can say um, I, I've had a I've been in Tokyo about three and a half years now, and um two wonderful discoveries is one the um incredible lay ministry that i thought i took seriously as a lutheran who was trained on the priesthood of all believers but until i saw it actually happening i was just i've just been really blown away by um realizing that i there are limited things that I am good at as a pastor. I, I am not a, a expansively gifted pastor. I have a pretty, you know, I think, specific narrow range of things I'm good at. But I don't have to be good at everything because the laity of my congregation are so great. They, they've they just risen to the occasion and, um, and taken up and done what they can do – they can do really well in a way that I can't. And I have become so appreciative of that. And then as part of this, I've been training some of them to be lay preachers because of our, you know, weird situation. I wanted to make sure they always had an option in case I was not available. And um, one of my members brought forward a sermon on first Corinthians about the body of Christ. And it was excellent. And I suddenly realized I never preach about the church. (laughs) I preach a lot about God, uh, you know, uh, in the full Trinitarian sense and everything is, implicitly about justification by faith and about, you know, the distinction between law and gospel. And people really respond to that because people do not know God well. And I've seen that as my, you know, my primary, you know, building up the church is to help people understand what the gospel actually is. But I just it was my layperson who brought to my attention through her own spiritual intuition that I never talk about what it means to be a church. And I thought, wow, major (laughs) deficit, better get on that. (laughs) So that's, I think, I think that's why actually reading Life Together this time was so different for me than the last two times I read it.
1: You know, my sainted professor in seminary, Robert Bertram taught me a profound truth um, when he said uh, about the holy communion that the christ who connects with every individual in the communion therewith connects every individual christian with every other individual christian who comes to the communion and receives it it's a it and so it really is not only an individual's Uh, participation in the body and blood of Christ, but it is Christ sharing all the members of the congregation with one another. And I think that's at the heart of this little book, Life Together.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's why I love that we have communion every Sunday because, uh, you know, it's it's the same words and the same action every time, but what it does e- even more than the rest of the worship service is it brings everybody up together and they're all lined up there and they all get the same thing and they're all standing with one another as they get it. And it's, there's something so simple and so tremendous about it at the same time.
1: Right. And of course you have to preach the symbolism of it. You can't, you can't. the the ritual does communicate, but it communicates inarticulately. And I think it's very important in the sermon to just point out regularly, see what is happening here. Look around you in the pew, look at your neighbor, see the one uh, uh, who is beloved in Christ as you are, and how you are bound together. You know, just, we should instruct Uh, the congregation along with proclaiming the gospel so that it is not just empty religious words, verbiage, but it it really is seen to be incarnate in the real life of real people gathered around word and sacrament on a Sunday.
0: Yeah, I'm going to get on that. So, all right. Well, in our 20 minutes or so left, why don't we go more deeply now into the specific practices and insights Bonhoeffer had into what actually constitutes a Christian community and not a shell of a com- Christian community?
1: Good. Well, let's begin. Fir- yeah, he, he begins the book talking about the nature of community. And his fundamental idea is community is koinonia. It's sharing. Uh uh, it's and by that he means it's neither conformity by which individuals are absorbed into a collective nor is it on the other extreme an anonymous membership in a religious organization for private purposes of gain Now th- those are the two extremes that he's excluding from community as sharing the individual is absorbed into some kind of collective identity uh, or the uh, individual takes advantage of the community as a as an organization from which he or she can privately profit uh, and both of those bonheffer rules out as inappropriate understandings what is the right understanding it's what you were saying earlier sarah, sarah. It is specifically community in Christ. Now, who's that? He who was rich, but for our sakes became poor. He who knew no sin, but was made to be sin, in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is community in this Christ, who shared himself with the sin, the death, the woe of the world, in order to give his life and righteousness and peace and blessing. So, focused on this real Christ, crucified, risen, and really present, who comes again and again to share himself with the gathered sinners, the believing sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous, the rich with the poor, that is intentional Christian sharing of life.
0: So here, let me let, let me quote from this um, passage he has, because I think this gives flesh to I mean, what you said is is great, but I can imagine it easily becoming another kind of abstraction, because you know, like we don't see Jesus here and he's not like literally mediating our con our conflicts with each other. This is how Bonhoeffer expresses that that um uh perfectly Uh, but fragilely balanced place between the two extremes. When he talks about freedom, he says, It is the freedom of the other that is a burden to Christians. The freedom of the other goes against Christians' high opinion of themselves, and yet they must recognize it. Christians could rid themselves of this burden by not giving other persons their freedom, thus doing violence to the personhood of others and stamping their own image on others. But when Christians allow God to create God's own image in others— they allow others their own freedom. Thereby Christians themselves bear the burden of the freedom enjoyed by these other creatures of God. I That just walloped me reading it this time because that's exactly what we don't do. <laughs> we we try to make church into a collective from which we benefit or into which we can be absorbed and no longer have the burden of our own freedom. And Bonhoeffer is saying, no, in fact, in in a... A truly Christ-animated Christian community. Then we are all burdened with our own freedom and with each other's freedom, and are constantly granting it to each other, and thereby by allowing each of us to be ourselves, but only ourselves, because we are in this fellowship with one another.
1: Yeah, well, that and of course that's a, that's again for Bonhoeffer a way of making Christ uh, uh, incarnate in the Christian community. Uh, He writes in another place about the other. To me, that other form may seem strange, even ungodly, but God creates every person in the image of God's Son, the crucified, and this image of a man dying on a cross, likewise, certainly looked strange and ungodly to me before I grasped it. So it is the perception of the crucified Christ as the victorious Son of God, victorious in the omnipotence of divine love on behalf of the unworthy and the perishing. It is that which then empowers me to be free and to let other people be free, or to even to actively free other people to be themselves. And that's the nature of the sharing that occurs in the Christian community.
0: Great. Great. So let's move from there to his dialectic between time together and time alone. I, I was really struck by this again in a way that I hadn't been before. Why don't you take us through it?
1: Right. Uh, he says there's a rhythm in Christian community between uh, a, a time together and time alone, a back and forth between them. And he says the time together is for prayer, praise, and thanksgiving, in response uh, to the common reading of Scripture. And he says this time together in this form, this Christ-focused form, is essential because in the weakness of my faith, I can rely on the strength of faith in others, and vice versa. And in this way, by coming together, we bear one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. So that's the the coming together. I remember when I was a confirmant many, many years ago, and it was explained to us why we should come to church on Sundays. And it always struck me that one of the reasons was to make a public witness. To make a public witness. And I think that that's a motive that Bonheffer is kind of picking up here. Uh, that the time together is uh, to witness perhaps to my need, my faith is weak and struggling and I need it to be helped, or because my faith is strong and I need to be there to uh, give aid to the other in need. However, that may concretely work out. That's the time together.
0: I just want to add add my perception when I was a kid of public witness meant that it was important that there were more cars in the parking lot of churches on Sunday mornings than of the grocery store because you (laughs) couldn't literally see the people inside the church. So it was was actually where the cars were that was the public witness.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in in some ways, that's still true. It's a sign of the vitality of a church and uh, uh maybe not the right kind of vitality but some kind of vitality right, <laughs> right. okay so the opposite pole of time together for bonheffer is time alone now naturally that's the 6 days of the week uh for 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 most of us it's time for daily work of course but bonheffer makes a big point of saying time alone is also time for study and meditation. And I think this is just something totally lost in contemporary American Protestant Christianity. Totally lost. That every Christian should be a lifelong learner of the Word of God and of uh, the church's theology, recognizing that we do not already know it all, so that we can in private Uh, Study and meditation be enriched in order that we can return to the time together better equipped, better to share? Man, I think that that is uh, something that needs to be lifted up. I think the renewal of Christianity will only come when pastors once again become teachers, not just preachers, and realize that. lifelong learning for themselves as well as for their people are mandatory uh, injections of uh, divine uh, supply to meet the demanding tasks of congregational life and ministry today.
0: I think this is a really tricky one to pull off and practice. I mean, all of this is, frankly, but I think on the one poll, there are certainly um, very demanding Christian congregations, denominations, movements in the U.S. You know, from the First Great Awakening onward, that have very clear expectations of their members, but it really does quickly devolve into a kind of legalism and blaming and shaming of people who don't achieve spiritually or keep up with what they're assigned in their their prayers or their readings or you know YouTube watchings or or whatever. And I think it's really. It's really easy to be so upset at the poverty of Christian understanding to just try to pile on lots of homework to try to bring people up to speed. So, I mean, that's, that's one extreme to guard against, but, but there is the other extreme that just, again, mistakes grace for absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> and, you know, just says, you know, you, you just come to come to church when you can, and we'll just, you know, fire hose you with um God's love and that will do the trick and you'll be fine. And I think again, what you discover in real lived Christian C- congregational life is that um and, and, and I you got to believe me, I don't mean this in a legalistic way, but people who are not doing the work, the necessary work at whatever pace, in whatever way is fitting for them, and they discern that together with the Holy Spirit, who are not actually opting in to their obligations of Christian life are really going to become poisonous to themselves and to others. And I think you have to like aim for a Christian congregation that's strong enough that can absorb a certain number of people who are um, needy or ir- responsible or um, a bit destructive because, you know, no one else will have them. <laughs> and the church does need to be a refuge for people like that. But no church is going to survive that kind of ministry to the the spiritually and psychologically troubled, unless they do have a, a pretty solid core of people who are doing the work at home. Um, and again, not to earn their salvation, not to be better than others, but because actually they, they hunger and thirst for the real God in their lives. And they've realized that and realize you know how how they they opt in and participate in that life and then they have a kind of surplus of strength for others but i think you know the goal i mean you want you want these um, um parasitic people ultimately to be broken out of their parasitism and to become contributors too as well i mean that that should be what we're headed towards
1: well that's yeah and that's that's always a hope that we have in ministry with such folks um uh, and I'm totally with you that the strong must bear the weak and, uh, and, and not despise them or show contempt for them or in any way humiliate those who are poor in power. Uh, I'm totally with you on that. But I think that what we're, we don't realize, according to Bonhoeffer's theological realism and his strong notion of costly grace, we're actually cheating people we're actually cheating the people if we don't empower them to live out the priesthood of all believers that in fact that they have in christ and bonheifer's rhythm of time together and time alone is meant to say that your time alone is not a vacation from christianity it's a time also for your personal investment And that's age appropriate and ability appropriate and so forth and so on uh, uh, in all those good, sensitive, pastoral ways.
0: Right. And I I think it's great you mentioned the strong and the weak. Bonhoeffer uses that figure from Romans 14 quite a lot. And as much as he admonishes the strong, he also admonishes the weak. And the weak are not to be um, enabled in their taking advantage of others any more than the strong are to assert their power over others. All right, let's move on to service then
1: right the other thing bon Hipper lifts up in the book is uh, intention that intentional christian community issues in service and i just want to quote quote the lord jesus here you know how it is among the gentiles how they lorded over one another but it shall not be so among you whoever would be greatest must become the servant of all Well, there's an idea, isn't it?
0: <laughs> Popular now as it ever was.
1: <laughs> now, again, in a Christ-centered community, central is the Christ who serves each of us by once and for all laying down his life and now presently taking our lives up with him in his resur- to his resurrection, renewal, and final glory. And so in the interim, people who are really related to the real Christ live in service of one another. Everyone has a a gift or a talent to contribute. Everyone in the intentionally Christian community has some service to contribute. And here it's the art, and I use the word art, of pastoral leadership. Uh, to serve by identifying and linking these lay services, just as you were talking about a little while ago, and the, in that way, building up the body of Christ.
0: Yeah, I think just uh, only thing I'd want to add to that is I think it's important that the service comes at this point in Bonhoeffer's laying out of the of the nature of life together, which is that it does actually have to come out first out of christ 's merciful act on our behalf and being the man for us, and then out of the time together and time alone in worship, prayer, and scripture study, and then it is out of that very rich soil that genuine Christian service emerges. My, my perception of American culture is that we're obsessed with service first and all the other stuff comes later, if at all. And um, I think it's kind of a, um, a notion of Christian compassion that is detached from its roots and in, in such a way withers, dies, and is not very Christian at all.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, just the folk wisdom of the proverb that says you can't squeeze blood out of a turnip, (laughs) you know, and you you can't produce good fruit out of uh, roots that are not properly nourished. Uh, And this is really what pastoral work uh, building up congregational life is about. It's about sinking those roots in good soil and nourishing them through proper uh, cultivation. Um, um, and you can't, you know, it's kind of a, it, it became something of an evangelism gimmick that if we could get people involved in in uh, various kinds of service projects, maybe that would be their entree into the church. And I think You know, to a degree that works, I think it works especially uh, 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 for certain kinds of men, you know, who would rather be doing than talking. (laughs) Right. Uh, (laughs) Right. 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 But, you know, I also think of all the ladies aid societies over the years that have quilted uh, and run food pantries and soup kitchens and things like that. And I don't want to knock any of that stuff. I think it's all wonderful. But where it is wonderful and not a kind of self-service to make myself feel good, but really is in freedom, a self-offering uh, in order to benefit another who is different from myself. Right there, it has to be nourished in the, in the, in the word and sacraments of Christ.
0: Right. I I think there's also, this is part of what you're talking about, this anxiety to have cultural patronage that churches often feel like there are certain forms of service that they have to do in order to look good. And it might just not be their gift or their strength, or they don't have the capacity to do it. And I think if you take Bonhoeffer's idea very seriously of this community right here is truly Christ's community, and it is comprised of these specific people and not some other imagined or idealized people, then the the task is to say, okay, well, what can we do? And what have we specifically been called to do? We can't do it all, What, but what is it that we're going to do? And I think that kind of Puts, puts the service in a different light. It really emerges out of the community that Christ has gathered in that place rather than some external standard of what a good church is supposed to be involved in.
1: Right. Yeah, good. All right.
0: Let's wrap up now with Confession in the Lord's Supper. This was a short section. I kind of feel like the Gestapo was pounding at the door and Bonhoeffer had to finish it up fast and get it off to the publisher. I don't know if that's <laughs> accurate or not, but it is a lot shorter than the other parts.
1: Yeah and I think the most the teaching about baptism and and the Lord's Supper is pretty standard but the most provocative part is his sharp insistence uh by the way with the support of Martin Luther himself okay. on per, on personal face-to-face confession of sin as the genuine preparation for the Lord's Supper and uh, you know I know some uh, people practice this in the Society of the Holy Trinity. It's a regular practice, uh, personal confession to a confessor and the reception of personal absolution. But I suspect that for most American Protestant Christians, uh, there's a a positive allergy to the very idea.
0: I think a fair number of Catholics are pretty allergic to it, too, to be honest. Right. I don't think anyone likes it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think there has been there have been notorious abuses of the confessional uh, uh, forms of toxic Christianity have been uh, associated with it. But uh, I, I think the way to get over the stumbling, but I, and I admit I myself, you know, uh, find uh, Bunheffer very challenging in this discussion. But I think one way to deal with it in a better way, um, um, or perhaps in a, a way that can ease ourselves into thinking about this, is that there are times in the life of the community, the life together, that real sin and real injury occurs. And the community is damaged. And the Lord's words about this are very severe. Better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and cast into the sea than you should cause one of these little ones to stumble. And so when there is sin that injures and injures not only another member, but by injuring that other member, damages the life together of the community, that sin has to be dealt with. It can't just be privately uh, 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 obliterated from consciousness. It needs to be dealt with. And, you know, we're witnessing today, Sarah, in the clergy sexual abuse scandals, including lots of Protestants, I would like to point out. I live 40 miles down the road from President Jerry Falwell, Jr. of Liberty University, uh, uh, even though he's not a clergyman, but he was, he's got his position because of clergy relatives. The scandal of such community, da- I, you know, And this for me gets a little bit passionate because at one time many years ago, I counted up uh, how many congregations I had served in a period of 15 years or so. And in, I think I remember counting in seven of the 10, I came in on the heels of the previous pastor's sexual misconduct. And I I witnessed uh, in my own eyes the anguish and disillusionment in the congregation that that caused. And of course... The church's, the institutional church's CYA response is get that guy out of here before we're sued. Right.
0: right.
1: And so there's no genuine. non
0: disclosure agreement.
1: Right. And then so there's no genuine dealing with the injury that's been done to the community. And I think this is the way to reframe this discussion of personal confession and absolution, uh, to get it back into a strong community social. Context. Uh, one last little anecdote about this. My de- dear departed mother uh, grew up in a, I think I might have mentioned this in a past podcast, so I'll be very brief, but she grew up with a practice of communion four times a year. But on the Saturday night before the communion, they all had to go to church for a confessional service. Uh, And for the personal reception of absolution. And then on the morning of the communion service, they would not eat any food, no bread. They fasted before the church service. And each individual in the family had to go to the other for a personal confession and forgiveness.
0: I had no idea about that. Wow. Yeah. That's powerful.
1: That's the way it was. Yep.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think you either have to have communion every Sunday or four times a year. Like nothing in between makes any sense because it either has to be the ordinary life of the church or it has to be like in your your mom's church, something that is so special and that you prepare yourself for very intensively in that way. I think I think both of those models are have a lot of integrity. Um I just I guess I I want to say like I fully appreciate everything you've said and endorse it about um corporate confession when a whole community has been damaged. But I still think it is a little bit dodging the the awkwardness of Bonhoeffer's intervention that we personally need um, confession and absolution. And um, I certainly do not make a habit of this, but I, I took my cues from um, what I guess I thought to be Luther is that when you are truly troubled in conscience, then, then going to um, private confession is a good idea. So I have done that a few times in my life um, over, you know it was really broken relationships that I couldn't fix, um, that I, I needed to go to. And I did find tremendous comfort in it. And, you know, not a ton of times, but in my pastoral, um, ministry over the years, I've offered, um, Private confession and absolution a few times, and I, th- I think there's something to be said maybe for it um, not being rote, but being uh, rare and offered to people when they when they are genuinely troubled in conscience, and what they're getting in the ordinary service is not the the word is not convincing to them. It doesn't speak directly and personally enough. And in the the tradition of, of Lutheran private confession, you know, it, you you. Do tell it to the pastor what's on your mind, very frankly, and you know, and then the pastor, you know, addresses you by name, directly, personally, and in and that context says, you know, in the name of Christ, I absolve you of all your sins, and um, they're they're gone. You can't have them anymore. So um, I I don't know. I I, I personally don't think <laughs> I definitely am not anywhere near a regular practice of personal confession. I know again there are, there are plenty who do that, but I think having it there as an as an, a pre and known option is is actually really good for the life of the church.
1: Absolutely, I, and uh, that's been my own pastoral practice as well. As as the not as the uh, uh, as the confessor, uh, there have been people who have had pastoral relationships with sessions of counseling, deeply troubled and uh, anguished in conscience about their behavior. And I think always it's a fitting conclusion to those relationships, this right for the personal confession and absolution. And uh, I've, I've done that. I've practiced that. And I do think that would be part. And here, here I want to kind of circle back, Sarah, to the whole thing, a theme that I introduced this discussion with. How are our demoralized congregations today uh, to rebuild? How are they to pick up uh, their cross and carry it and go forward from this point? And I think that a, a careful study of Bonhoeffer's life together gives us a new model or a, a renewing model uh, uh, that we have to adapt each of us to our own local uh, circumstances with pastoral freedom and responsibility. Uh, and that also means for the lay people listening to this, that they too take up their responsibility for the church and for the church's ministry. And that we, that we realize that what's been lacking uh, is not so much in our theology, at least so far as we still follow it. Uh, uh, or in the uh, people given to us as pastors. What's what's lacking is the very model that we should be about intentional Christian community. Uh, and that's what I think bonheffer has to offer us. So I would like to conclude with this quotation from bon- bonheffer Uh, To everyone who feels disillusioned with the church, pastor or layperson, Bunheffer writes, By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live in a dream world, even for a few weeks, or to abandon ourselves to blissful experiences and exalted moods that sweep over us like a wave of rapture. For God is not a God of emotionalism, but the God of truth a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and, if we are fortunate, a great disillusionment with ourselves is bound to overwhelm us as surely as God desires to lead us to an understanding of genuine Christian community. Since community that cannot bear and cannot survive such disillusionment clings instead to its idealized image when that should be done away with. Let the dead bury the dead, I comment. It loses at the same time the promise of a durable Christian community, end quote.
0: Well, they always say never waste a good crisis. So we've been thrown into crisis unwilling for the past two years. You know, all we can do is take the opportunity to strip away every every false accretion that was not Christ-centered and take the opportunity to start over again and start on, start with, with Christ and those he has convened around him and uh, let that be enough for us.
1: The Church of Christ in every age must keep on rising from the dead, as the hymn says.
0: Right. All right. Well, to continue in that cheerful tone, next time on the show, we will be talking about the Saul saga in 1 Samuel. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenleckiewilson.com and paulhenleckie.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.